Our call to confession this morning comes from Psalm 32. The first six verses there of Psalm 32 there, David writes, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledge my sin to you and did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. As David writes this psalm, the, the blessedness that he speaks of there in the first two verses, the, the joy and the happiness that he speaks of there in the first two verses, is firmly grounded uh, in the lived experience of verses 3 through 5. See, David knows uh, the destructive power and pain uh, that can be caused by unconfessed sin. Look at verse 3. He says, For when I was silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. As David kept sin, unconfessed sin, bound up in himself, he felt the weight of it. He felt the pain of it. He felt the the guilt of it, the shame of it. He felt God's hand heavy upon him, pressing him to confess it. And it was only through uh, confessing it, only through speaking it, that David found freedom. When he acknowledges his sin, when he determines to confess his sin, he finds in that freedom and forgiveness. That's why he can declare, blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven. And so the encouragement there of verse 6 is an encouragement that David gives to all who would read this, right? Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer at a time when God might be found. Every Sunday that we gather together, every Lord's Day that we gather together, we take time each day to confess our sin, to kneel before the Lord together as brothers and sisters in Christ, and to not keep things bound up inside of us, but to declare them and to say them out loud. And we do this not in fear of judgment or destruction, but we do this with the certainty that as we do it, we will find freedom and forgiveness. This is a joy of what it is to follow Christ. This is a joy of what it is to live in the freedom that Christ has accomplished for us upon the cross, that we do not need to keep sin bound up inside unspoken, but we can say it out loud. We can confess it before the Lord, and we know that as we confess our sin before the Lord, we live in the freedom and the forgiveness that Christ has accomplished and Christ has won for us. So this morning, it would be wise for us to heed the words of this psalm and to offer up to the Lord prayer while he may be found, coming before him, corporately confessing our failure and our sin, but also in an extended time of silence, bringing before the Lord the sins that we know are in our own lives and in our own souls. And as we do that, rejoicing that God is gracious and kind to free us and to forgive us of all our sin. So if you are able this morning, I'll ask you to please kneel with me as we confess our sins. Come, let us worship and bow down. We'll read this passage in just a moment, but we're continuing to walk through the book of Genesis, uh, and we are right in the meat of the Abraham narrative, as God has called Abram out of Ur the Chaldeans, called him out of idol worship, called him to himself, and as Abraham is learning what it is to, to follow the Lord and to trust in the Lord. And as we look at Genesis 15, this is obviously a, an extremely important passage, uh, moment in that, that story, event in this narrative, as was just heard from what Paul uh, wrote in the New Testament. And as we look at this passage, we continue to see Abram uh, grow 
in his understanding of what it is to follow the Lord, grow in his understanding of what it is to pursue the Lord. Um, and as we do, we are encouraged all the more to follow in the footsteps of our Father in the faith, to walk in obedience to the Lord, to walk in faithfulness. But we're also encouraged uh, because as Abram is interacting with God here in this passage, and as he's, he's asking God questions, uh, and God is answering his questions, uh, we are encouraged because what we find, honestly, is that some of the questions Abram asks are the questions that if we haven't asked, we should ask. And the answers that he gets are not just for him, but are for us as well to comfort and to encourage us as well. So let's look at Genesis 15 together. It says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars. If you are able to number them, then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And he said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. When the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in the land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go down to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete." When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites and the Kenezites, the Kadamites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. This is the word of the Lord. May he be glorified at the reading of his word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you this morning thankful for the opportunity to enter into your word. And I do pray, God, that you would give us wisdom, that you would give us understanding, that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that you would enlighten the eyes of our hearts, that we might understand the hope to which you have called us, Father. What uh, are the riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of your power towards us who believe? Father, I do pray that you would be glorified in the preaching of your word, that we would be edified, and that Christ would be exalted. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as we look at this passage here in uh, Genesis chapter 15, it really works out in two scenes, two scenes that are really structured in the same way. Each scene begins with a declaration from God and then is followed by a question from Abram, and then Abram's question is answered by God. Uh, these two scenes are also deeply connected to the promises that God has already made to Abram when he called him out of Ur of the Chaldeans in Genesis chapter 12. If we go back to Genesis 12, when God called Abram, Remember that that call was accompanied by a fourfold promise, right? God promised to give Abram a people. He promised his continued presence and protection. He promised a purpose for Abraham's call, and he promised a land to Abram. 
And that promise, we said, as we look at Genesis 12, really drives this narrative of Abraham forward, not only drives this, na- this narrative forward, but really forms the backbone of God's interaction with his people throughout their history. And today in the, in the passage, uh, in, in chapter 15, uh, we find Abram interacting, God interacting with Abram, specifically in two parts of that promise, uh, a people or offspring and a land. And as we said, uh, as God is interacting with Abram in this section, in this chapter, and as Abram is asking these questions, what we find is that Abram continues to be a man of deep faith, deep trust and certainty in the things of God, uh, and that God continues to show himself faithful to Abram. And by, uh, by not connection, by, uh, what's the word? I'm, the, the word is gone, doesn't matter. By extension, right? Uh, faithfulness to us as well. And we find that the questions that Abram asks, the questions that we ask, the certainty that Abram receives is a certainty that we receive and we see most clearly and uh, beautifully in Christ Jesus. So let's look at this passage together. As we look at scene one, scene one unfolds in verses one through six. Now, as we move into chapter 15, we need to understand that it has a, a deep connection to chapter 14 that comes beforehand. As we look at verse 1, it says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Now, the, the these things that 15.1 is referring to is no doubt uh, what took place in chapter 14, where Abram is involved in this battle uh, where he goes to rescue Lot and the possessions of Lot. And even more specifically, what happens at the tail end of that after his victory. Right? So after his victory, following Abraham's victory, the king of Sodom offers to Abram all the reward of the battle, right? all the booty. So you go, you, you make war, you conquer, you defeat, and then everything that's there, that's yours to take, that's your reward to enrich yourself uh, for your victory. But what Abram does is Abram refuses any reward from the king of Sodom. Right? He looks at the king of Sodom, he says, I've raised my hand to the Lord Most High not to take anything from anyone so that they might not have the opportunity to say, I have made Abram rich. Right now, going back to Genesis 12, God promised to bless Abraham. He said, I'm going to bless you. And so what Abram is doing in chapter 14 at that tail end of the battle there is he's reaffirming his faith in the promises of God. Right? He's reestablishing himself and saying, listen, I'm not going to take anything from your hand because then you'd have opportunity to say, well, I have blessed Abram. He is who he is because I gave that to him. Abraham doesn't want anyone to have that opportunity save God and God alone. God is the one who will bless him. God is the one who will establish him. God is the one who will make him great. And so Abram is reaffirming his faith in that and his dependence upon God to do what God said he would do. So in response to that, after these things, chapter 15, verse 1, God comes to Abram and says what? He says, fear not, I am your shield. God says this several times to his people throughout the Old Testament. I am your shield. I am your protector. I am the one who watches over you. And he says, your reward shall be very great. Right? So God, in chapter 15 here, as he comes to Abram and speaks to him, is not only reaffirming his promise to Abraham, but he is actually responding to Abraham's kind of position of faith that he expressed in front of the king of Sodom. Right? I'm not going to take anything from you. I'm going to trust in God to bless me. Now God responds to that and says, yes, Abram, your reward will be very great. Now, if God were to say that to us, most likely we would get super excited and start to think of all the things that we might want as a reward. Jeff mentions it's my birthday on June 7th, Tuesday. Uh, So I am thinking of all the amazing gifts that I'm going to get for my birthday, which I'm pretty sure is not going to be very much. That's what happens when you get to be 56. The presents just dry up. They stop coming. Um, 
But most of us would be like, yeah, what reward are you going to give? But uh, Abram doesn't immediately think of what reward God is going to give to him. He thinks of what he has not yet received, right? When God says your reward will be very great, Abram's first thought is the tragic situation of his family. So look at verse 2. He says, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. While Abram is certainly wealthy and a man of great possessions, in the absence of an heir, everything he has begins to diminish in value. In fact, the desperation of his situation is probably better conveyed when we consider that an appropriate or an acceptable translation here would be, I will die childless. Abraham's looking at a situation and it's like he's surrounded by a million things. He's got sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants, but he has no heir and all he sees ahead of him is a childless existence. I am going to die childless. Now we can understand contextually, even within the book of Genesis, the importance of children and their connection to God's blessing. Right, if you go back to Genesis chapter 1, the very beginning of all things is God brings creation into existence and he, he puts Adam and Eve into the garden. He gives them this mandate. What does he say? He says, I, it says he blesses them and he calls on them. He commands them to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth. Right? So there's this connection between them being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth with offspring and God's blessing upon them such that throughout Scripture, children are clearly seen as a blessing from the Lord. And yet Abram here is neither fruitful nor multiplying. And he sees this. He knows this. He understands God's place in this. Right? Look at verse 3. He says, Behold, you have given me no offspring." You've given me no offspring, and a member of my own household is going to be my heir. He recognizes and affirms that he does not have children because God has chosen not to give him children. And the only recourse he sees, the only option he sees, is to adopt a household slave and to make this household slave the heir of his home. If we remember, we shouldn't be too surprised at this because we remember the, Gen the uh, Abraham narrative, or the Abraham narrative was introduced to us in Genesis 11 with a statement concerning Sarah's barrenness. The scripture was clear, or was, was uh, uh, deliberate to make that point clear to us. And yet, even in the midst of Sarah's barrenness, God has promised offspring to Abraham, right? In Genesis chapter 12, verse 7, he speaks of your offspring. In Genesis 13, 15, he says, For all the land that you see, I will give to your offspring. Not only has he promised offspring, he's promised a great number of offspring, right? Genesis chapter 13, verse 16, God says, I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth. So that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring shall also be counted. Now, I don't know if you've ever, like, stood in a desert. Uh, I've been in Dubai. I don't know if that really counts as a desert anymore. I don't know if you've ever been to Dubai. That place is it's just a, a testament to how rich they are. They're like, hey, look at this. We can do crazy things in the desert. But if you go into a desert and you pick up sand, uh, and as you look at it, uh, attempting to even count right, the, the, the portion of that sand that's, that's in your hand, even attempting to count the, the individual granules of sand is an is a impossible task, right? It's unbelievably impossible as it falls through your fingers and falls back down to the ground, let alone numbering all of it that you see, right? And yet God says to Abram in, in, in the midst of this, he says, listen, if you can number the dust of the earth, so shall your offspring be. So not only has God promised offspring, God's promised a, a huge, large, like, innumerable amount of offspring, and yet Abram continues to be childless. 
And he's so frustrated by this, such that even when God says your reward will be very great, all he can think about is the one thing he does not have, which is a child. But God steps into the midst of this frustration and he reaffirms to Abram his promise. Look at verses four and five. He says, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son or a son from your own loins shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars. If you are able to number them, then he said to them, so shall your offspring be. Abram has a plan and God says, that, that's not the plan that's going to happen, Abram. It's not going to be Eleazar. You will have your very own son. You have a legitimate son, a son from your own loins, and he shall be your heir. Not only that, Abram, the offspring that you have shall be innumerable. So he takes Abram outside again and he, he instructs him to look up at the night sky and to consider the stars. I just recently returned uh, from a trip to the Boundary Waters. And uh, if you're not from Minnesota, that's like the one saving grace of Minnesota is the Boundary Waters. We, you got winter and you got to suffer through uh, 10 months of that. You get a month and a half of summer and then winter comes back again. I don't even think there's 12, 12 months in Minnesota. And then, uh, but the, the Boundary Waters is gorgeous. It's this wilderness, right? It's, it's you go out there in a boat and you have portage, and before you know it, there's nobody around, and it's just you in the wilderness. And on a clear night sky with no light around, you can just see the sky full of stars. And so you imagine Abram walking out on a clear night to look up into the sky and to attempt to number the stars that he sees before him. A task again, which he is incapable of doing, and God says, this, Abram, this, if you can count it, is the number of your offspring. So again, God reassuring him, stepping in to the midst of this frustration, to the, to the fact that all he can see is a childless existence. And he says, no, Abram, this is not how it's going to be. You will have a child, you will have offspring, and they shall be innumerable offspring. And so we read Abram's response to this in verse 6. It says, and he believed the Lord, or better yet, believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Abram is silent, really, right? This isn't, this isn't a verbal response on Abram's part. He doesn't say, okay, Lord, yay, Lord, I'm with you, Lord, high five, Lord. He's silent. And we can imagine that as he's staring up at the sky and he's staring at those stars and as God is speaking this truth to him, there's a settled conviction that comes over Abraham that he says, I believe. I believe in you, Lord. I believe in what you are saying. At the heart of this word believe is, is a sense of certainty, Right, a settled conviction. We are reminded of Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, that actually defines faith or belief for us. And it says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. So as Abraham stands there silently looking up at the sky, hearing God's word of promise, his response is to internally settle his conviction and his assurance and his faith and his belief in the Lord. He trusts that God will do what he said he will do, even in the midst of what seems to be insurmountable odds. Let us not forget, Abraham is not getting any younger. Neither is Sarah, and her barrenness seems to be going nowhere, and yet Abram believes. Now what makes this verse stand out, though, is not necessarily Abram's faith, right? We've gotten kind of used to Abram being a man of faith. Genesis chapter 12, God just comes to him in the midst of his idolatry and says, get up and go. What does Abram do? He gets up and goes. He does what he's told. Just like Noah built the ark, Abram gets up and goes. So we've seen 
Abram be a man of faith. We saw in Genesis chapter 14 where he says, I'm not going to take a reward from anyone. What is he doing? He's trusting in God. So it's not necessarily Abram's faith. If anything, chapter or verse 6, what it does is it reaffirms a continual position of faith that Abram has decided to be in, right? He is continually trusting God. We see this throughout his life and we'll see it throughout the rest of his life. But what makes this verse unusual or what makes it stand out is God's response to Abram's faith. What does it say? And he counted it to him as righteousness. God counted that belief, that faith, that assurance, that certainty to Abram as righteousness. Now, the impact of this verse theologically is well understood. Jeff read this morning from Romans chapter 4, where, where Paul's whole understanding, his whole understanding of justification through faith is built upon this verse. He looks back in history and he sees chapter 15, verse 6, where it says, and he believed God and God counted it to him as righteousness. And Paul says, this is how God operates. Now, typically, when we think about righteousness in the Old Testament, righteousness is almost always within the Old Testament, if not exclusively, understood as right actions. Right? So righteousness is doing right things. And so doing right things is counted as righteousness, but that's not what's happening in 15.6. It's not Abram doing righteousness that's counted as righteousness. It's Abram believing and God counting that faith, crediting righteousness to him, to him on the basis of that faith. God is saying, you believe in me, and I'm going to count that faith as you existing in right relationship with me. So it's not that Abram is out there doing righteousness and God is saying, I see your righteousness. I'm going to credit your righteousness as righteousness. It's Abram believing in the Lord, believing in the Lord and God crediting that faith to him as righteousness. God considers Abram to be righteous because of his faith in him. And obviously this becomes paradigmatic in several ways for us throughout the scripture. Right, first, Abram stands as an example for all who will come after him. All of his offspring, the generations that will come from him, are to learn from Abram. They are to be people of faith. People who believe in the word of God. People who rest their faith firmly, their conviction firmly in God and in his promises. This is what God delights in. He delights in people who trust him who believe him, who have faith in what he says. This is what causes God to rejoice. This is what causes God to delight is when his people trust in him. And what we learn from the New Testament as well is that all those who are truly offspring of Abram are those who share in the faith of Abram. So as offspring of Abram, we would learn, we'd be wise to learn to trust in the promises of God, even in the midst of the most insurmountable odds, even in the midst of the most devastating confusion. I mean, think about Abram's life. Like, he, this, this, it's not all wine and roses, right? He, he desperately wants a child, and he's got a barren wife, and nothing seems to be getting better. And he's only getting older, and the way of women is passing from his wife, and there seems no hope at the end of it, and yet he trusts, and he believes, and he has faith in what God says. And we only see it mature as we walk through this narrative. We only see it mature as we walk through this narrative, as he learns more what it is to trust God. And so we need to learn to trust God, because he's made very great promises to us as well. 
And sometimes the circumstances of our life seem to go in complete contradiction to what God says. And the circumstances of our life want to undo our faith and our hope and our conviction that God is going to do what God said he would do. And yet it's in the midst of those very difficult and great circumstances that our faith needs to be all the more strong and settled in the Lord. And so we learn from Abram. Secondly, all those who come from Abram should understand faith as a basis for living in right relationship with God. As we said, this does not negate the need for practical righteousness. Abram obeyed, right? Abram obeyed. Yes, he believed he had faith, and his faith is counted as righteousness, but that faith bled out in obedience to the Lord. We saw this with Noah as well. Noah obeyed. Faith is always accompanied by obedience, doing what God calls us to do, but we can't reverse the equation. Right? The obedience flows out of our faith. And the obedience that God delights in is an obedience that flows out of faith and trust in him. If we look forward into Israel's history, we know that it doesn't really go great for them. Right? And they end up in exile. And in Isaiah, God sends a prophet Isaiah to prophesy against them. And in Isaiah chapter 1, verses 10 through 20, God declares his hatred for their sacrificial acts. Right? Stop bringing me the fatted calves. I take no delight in the slaughtering of bulls and rams. The, the thing is that, that Israel, in, in a weird way, right, was still kind of being obedient. Right? They were still kind of doing what they were supposed to do. They were maintaining the cultic sacrificial system. They were going to the temple. They were sacrificing. They were, in essence, doing kind of what God wanted them to do. But their obedience was not flowing from a place of faith and trust in who the Lord was. It was simply mechanical obedience to try to check something off the list. If you're a parent in here, we know well the difference between an obedience that flows out of a love and a, and a trust and a dependence in us as parents and an obedience that comes from this mechanical place where kids are just trying to check things off a list so they can get to do what they want to do or they can have what they want to have or whatever it might be. And, and we as parents, we delight more in the obedience that flows out of a love and a trust and a dependence in us as parents than this mechanical obedience that simply gets things done. And so we look at Abram and Abram's faith is counted to him as righteousness. God delights in the faith of Abram and he counts it to him as righteousness. And then Abram's obedience flows out of that faith. And it's the same for us as well. As Paul said, we are justified by faith and faith alone. And we see that here. It is our faith in Christ that is credited to us as righteousness. And then out of that righteousness, which is literally the whole, the whole argument really of Romans in a nutshell, out of that righteousness flows righteousness. Out of that faithful righteousness, that faith-based righteousness flows practical righteousness and obedience. And so it's not that works or practical righteousness are not necessary, but they flow out of a place of faith, trusting in the Lord and who the Lord said he would be. And so we are accounted righteous, not because we are righteous or because we do righteousness, but we are accounted righteous because we trust in the promises of God to save us through Christ Jesus. Now as we move into scene two, scene two follows a similar pattern. I'm way behind on time. I'm doing great. That clock's wrong? Oh, shouldn't have told me that. Scene two follows the same scene. God makes a declaration. Look at verse seven. He says, I'm the Lord who brought you out of Ur the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess and that, that statement, obviously, is, a, uh, is a, a reflection on Genesis chapter 12, where God calls Abram out, calls him to himself. And again, this statement from God is followed by a question from Abram. Look at verse 8. 
But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Structured in a very similar way or same way to what we see earlier. Now, if, if we did not have... If we did not have verses 1 through 6, we might think that verse 8, or the question in verse 8, was a statement of doubt on Abram's part. You might think that it's a question where, where he's saying to God, you know what, how do I really know that you're going to come through and that I'm going to get this land? But given the fact that we have verse 6 where it says that Abram believed God, that he has a settled conviction and trust and, and faith in the Lord, we know that verse 8 is not doubt so much as it is a desire for a sign. And a desire for a sign is not an unbiblical thing. All right, we can think of Isaiah, where Isaiah is, uh, goes to Ahaz, King Ahaz, in chapter 7. And he is encouraged to ask God for a sign. God says, make it as high as the heavens or as deep as Sheol. Whatever you want, ask for it. And I'll give you a sign to show you that I will do what I said I will do. And then Ahaz responds in this kind of uh, uh, humble, uh, pretend humble piety. Like, oh, I don't want to put the Lord God to the test. Far be it for me to put the Lord God to the test. And the Lord is not impressed with that. He's not happy with that. He says, if I, ask, if, you ask, if I tell you to ask me for a sign, ask me for a sign, and I'll give you a sign. So it's not out of place for Abram to ask for a sign in order to have this tangible, visible awareness of, the, of a full assurance that God is going to do what he said he would do. And so God responds to Abram's question. God answers it. How shall I know? And God says, here's how you shall know. And it's in verses 9 through 21. Let's read those together. He said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought all these and cut them in half and laid each half over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. Now it's interesting. God tells him to go get these animals. And either we have a, a part of the command that is not recorded or written, or Abram knew exactly what to do with these animals when he brought these animals, because he responds by getting them and not only getting them, but getting them and then cutting these animals in half. Um, I was sitting at home last night just really trying to picture like how long that would take. I this isn't the maybe this isn't the place or time to think about cutting a cow in half. Uh, maybe it is, but I imagine that's a timely process uh, to take a, a three-year-old cow and, and goat and, and cut these things in half, but that's what he does and he lays them aside to each other. And it says, when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. And as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abraham, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Dreadful and great darkness are often, often accompany God's presence in the Old Testament. Uh, and so his presence is coming upon Abram here in verse 12. And the Lord said to him, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. They will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions." As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the third, or back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Ammonites, Amorites, is not yet complete. And when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, "To your offspring I will give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenesites." the Kadamites, the Hittites, the Prezites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. And so what is God's response to Abram? Abram says, how will I know, Lord? What's his response? His response is to enter into covenant relationship formally with Abram here in Genesis 15. Now, as we look at this, there's a couple interesting things that God says here. As Abram has these animal pieces cut, as he's fighting off the birds of prey, as he's waiting and waiting, uh, in verse 12, this deep sleep comes upon him. And then the Lord tells Abram 
that his, his people, his offspring, will inherit this land. This will be their land, but it won't be their land for some time. Right? He says, know for certain, know for certain that they're going to be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. They, they'll be enslaved in, enslaved in a land that is not theirs for 400 years, and then I'll bring judgment upon that nation. I'll bring them out with great possessions. Now, we've already seen Abram go down to Egypt. God bring judgment on Egypt. Abram come out with great possessions, foreshadowing the exodus that is to come. And then God says, then I'll bring them back here in the fourth generation for the sin of the Amorites is not yet complete. Now, what's interesting about this is that God's response is not just limited to Abram's offspring, right? But it expands beyond that to how God's going to use Abram's offspring. And it expands beyond that to God's sovereignty over all nations, Right? God mentions Egypt and he mentions the Amorites. Why? Because he is sovereign over those nations. He's going to use his people and bringing his people out and accomplishing salvation for them. He's going to bring judgment upon the nation of Egypt. Then he's going to bring judgment upon the nations of the promised land. Why? Because he is the sovereign God who rules over all these nations. And so in one sense, how can Abram know that his people will own this land, will have this land? Because the sovereign God who rules all nations has said, this shall be their land. And also we see where God comes to him uh, in the darkness, in his presence, and then he cuts a covenant with him. Literally in verse 18, the Lord made a covenant. That word is to cut a covenant. It's a very visual thing, and it goes hand in hand with the cutting of the animal pieces that we see here as Abraham does that in this chapter. And so God is making a covenant with Abram, but not just Abram, but Abram and his descendants after him. This is one of the beautiful things about God's covenantal relationship with his people is it rolls over generations. It's far bigger and more encompassing than we often think it is to be. I like to be uh, self-referential. I don't want to implicate anyone else in this, but I grew up uh, in the Southern Baptist Convention, SBC, uh, which is increasingly seems to be going further and further downhill. Um, probably because I left. Um, I like to think that. But one of the things that became difficult for me as, as I continued to pastor and, and preach and teach within the SBC is understanding how uh, my children and the children's children that would come after me were related to what God was doing in my life and my wife's life. And, and I saw all of our relationships surrounded by covenant. My wife and I are covenanted together in marriage. We exist together as brother and sister in covenant relationship with the Lord. And I was starting to trying to figure out, well, what do I do with all these little people that are running around in my house? How do they fit into the puzzles and the pieces of what God is doing here? And within the Baptist church, there's not a really good theology of family. They don't really give you a good answer other than the fact that they're little reprobate sinners who need to repent and come to Christ and you should treat them as such. But then it gets really confusing because you're like, well, why don't you pray the Lord's Prayer? But at the same time, you're still a sinner. You have no part in doing this. Hey, come to church. This is your family, but it's not really your family. So don't get too attached to these folks because you might not end up here. And it's just like the little brains are just torn to pieces by this. And my brain was torn to pieces by this. And then you start to realize that when God enters into covenant relationship, it's not like, like individual each time he's making a new covenant with every individual. He enters into this covenant relationship that encompasses offspring, right? That pulls them in to his grace and his goodness and his promises and covers them. And you start to realize that it's not so much about us. It's not so much about me and you. It's about God and these amazing promises that he has made to his people. And it's, it's like what Paul says in Ephesians 1, where he says that God lavishes his grace upon us. This is what God loves to do. He loves to lavish his grace upon his people to dump it out in bucketfuls. And so he says to Abram, how do you know you're going to possess this land? Because I'm making covenant with you and not just you, but your offspring after you. 
They will be my people and I will be their God. And there's these wonderful, beautiful promises that we can hold to that just pour out of this. Now, as we look at this covenantal relationship here, this covenant that Abram enters into, the way that he does it with the animal pieces and whatnot, there's really, there's actually several ways to interpret what's happening here. And there's two main ones that I want to address uh, this morning. Uh, the, the first is that as Abram is cutting these animal pieces in half and laying them side by side, he is doing something which was commonplace in his day and time. And he's entering into a, a covenantal treaty uh, that he would understand uh, is taking place whereby these animals are cut in half, they're, they're laid uh, uh, opposite each other, and uh, the, the parties making this covenantal relationship with one another would often walk between these animal pieces, uh, maybe reciting the stipulations of the covenant, and the, the visual picture you get, this visual picture you get, is that if I break covenant with you, let this be done to me. Let this be the end of me if I break this covenant relationship with you. We see uh, a connection to this in Jeremiah 34. In Jeremiah 34, verse 18, it's a, uh, God is speaking, and God says, And the men who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant that they made before me, I will make them like the calf that they cut in two and passed between its parts. And so one translation here is that Abram is doing what he knows to be done within the context of a covenantal relationship, such that when God, when Abram sleeps in verse 12 and, and he's resting, and then God comes and enters between these animal pieces, God is, is in actuality invoking upon himself the curse of the covenant, saying, Abram, if I break covenant with you, let this be done to me. Let, let, let this happen to me. The, implica or the implication, the clear implication being that God doesn't break covenant. That, that, that if Abram were to walk through, what would happen to Abram? Probably like 20 seconds later, we'd have to cut him in half. Like, it wouldn't last very long, right? We are not known, as people, for our covenantal faithfulness. We're not really good at that, right? We struggle with that. And so God is bringing or invoking upon himself the curse of the covenant and, and explaining or showing to Abram, Abram, I, how do you know you'll get the land? You know because I am taking it upon myself. Another interpretation, one that <coughs> was somewhat new to me, but I find interesting, is that these cut pieces actually represent Abram's offspring. They represent the nation of Israel moving forward such that when Abram fights off these uh, birds of prey, he's fighting off four nations that would seek to undo and destroy God's people. And that when Abram falls asleep in verse 12, that's actually representing, uh, kind of picturing his death so that he dies. And then the smoking fire pot comes and moves between the pieces assuring Abraham that even after his death, God's presence will continue with his people and be with his people. Now, whatever interpretation we choose to take there, I don't think is as crucial as the end that we reach. All right, now, that doesn't mean we get to be frivolous in our study of the scriptures, but I think what it means is that each of those interpretations really end ultimately in the same place. And that is that the answer to Abram's question is God himself. Abram says, how can I know that this land will be mine, that will be my offspring's land, that they will inherit it? And God says, because I have promised it. Because I have said it will happen and I will accomplish it. I will bring it about. I will do it. My presence will be with your people as my presence was with you. And I will bring them into this land and I will establish them in this land. And that is really truly the beauty of God's covenantal promises. Right? They, they rest not on us not on our ability to keep covenant, but on him and his promises towards us. 
Now what's interesting is that one main objection to that first uh, 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 interpretation I mentioned where God is invoking covenantal curse upon himself, one main objection to that is, uh, is why would God, why would God invoke upon himself the curses of the covenant? Right? If you go throughout the Old Testament, oftentimes God's oath to his people is made in a positive sense. Uh, for instance, in Numbers, God says, as I live, declares the Lord. And this would be an unusual instance where God invokes upon himself the curse of the covenant. But while that might seem out of place within the context of Old Testament uh, literature, Old Testament theology, it is not out of place when we consider the full context of God's purposes and plans in Christ Jesus. Because in fact, God taking the curse of covenantal failure upon himself is central to our theology. It is central to our salvation. Because what we believe took place at the cross of Christ Jesus is that God did in fact take upon himself the curse of co our covenantal failure. That on the cross, Christ bore the wrath for our sin. We have all fallen short. We have all failed to glorify God. We have all failed to live in right covenantal relationship with the Lord. And God pours out the curse of the covenant upon Christ himself on the cross. And so I think in this instance with Abraham, we get this picture of what is to come. That God says, I will take upon myself the curse of your covenantal failure, the curse of your offspring's covenantal failure, and I will redeem for myself a people through my son Jesus Christ who will be crushed upon the cross for your sin, for our sin. And so when we think about Abram's question, how shall I know that my offspring will inherit this land? We understand that there is a greater land that's ahead of us, right? We stand to inherit the new creation. God's new creation. And the, the question that Abram asks here, how shall I know, is the same question that we could ask as well. How shall we know or how can we know that we will inherit the new creation? How can we know that the promises of God are ours? How can we know that he will be faithful and sure and true to keep those promises? And the answer is the cross. He puts his son there on the cross to drink down to the dregs our failure. Our sin, our rebellion, our hatred, our enmity to say to us, to declare to us, to proclaim to us, you are redeemed, you are mine, and all my promises are yes and amen in Christ, and so they are your promises. How can we know that we shall inherit the land? Because Christ died upon the cross to secure Abraham's righteousness to secure his offspring's righteousness, to secure our righteousness, to secure our inheritance. And I think Paul, Paul gets at the heart of this in Ephesians chapter one, one of my favorite passages. I don't typically make a plug for this in sermons, but I, 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 I'm a huge fan of scripture memorization. And I think we should all be laboring, laboring to memorize scripture as much as possible. And so I've set out to, to memorize Ephesians. It's a, the, the whole book. I'm just like, I'm going to do this. Uh, and so uh, this is a passage that's just been constantly rolling around in my brain. And I think it's so applicable to what we read here in Genesis 15. Paul says, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. 
In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things, all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. How shall we know that we will inherit all the promises that God has given to us because of Christ? Because Christ went to the cross, because Christ took our covenantal failure, and because in Christ we have the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our possession, our, our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. To the praise of God's glory and God's glory alone. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you and thank you for your word. We praise you and thank you that you are God who keeps promise. We thank you, Father, that you delight in lavishing your grace upon us. And I pray, Father, that we would delight in living out the truth of the gospel, living out the righteousness we have in Christ Jesus, and so glorifying and honoring you. We thank you, Father, that we can look at the life of Abram, that we can see faith, we can see righteousness. Above all, Lord, we can see your covenantal faithfulness to your people. Be glorified in our lives, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Let us go this week resting firmly in the God who keeps his promises. Now raise your hands in, in song with me as we go into this new week with the Lord's blessing.